Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Along Came a Writer Network. Opinions expressed in our shows do not necessarily reflect those of the network. Welcome to Chat Noir, Mystery and Suspense. I'm your host, Linda Kozar, and I'm an author interviewing fellow authors. And it is my pleasure today to be interviewing debut author Deborah Maxey to my listeners. I'm going to read you just a little bit about her before I introduce her. Um, Deborah Maxey grew up immersed in the legends and traditions of Native American and Appalachian culture, a wife, mother, and grandmother. Deborah enjoys camping, hiking, living on a lake, brimming with wildlife, and the love of her two Yorkies. Her oil portraits and one-woman art shows help fund her PhD in counseling. As a psychotherapist and expert witness in the courts, her fascination with characters and conflict drives her passion to create fiction, and information can be found on her at DebraMaxey.com, and that's M-A-X-E-Y. So welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, so excited to talk about your debut book. Now, now how does it feel? Um, you know, all of us authors who had our debut. <laughs> I know we sound like fancy yeah. people, don't we? Our debut. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes. it's exciting. That first book is something else. So what has your experience been like so far? Well, one of the greatest things about this is these people have been alive in my head and my heart for so long, and now people are talking to me like they're people that they've met. So when they talk about the characters, I get to talk back, and I have a community that knows these people, not just in my head. So it's just been a wonderful piece of this. I know normal people would think, these these writer folks are crazy. <laughs> Because <laughs> yes, we we talk to our characters and we're like, oh no, she wouldn't do that. I can't wait. Yes, that. <laughs> yes. it is. It's kind of crazy. Okay, I'm gonna admit that. <laughs> but well, I know it's crazy. I'm, I can certify that it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a psychotherapist. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yes. it's, it's, we're just peculiar people, right? <laughs> Um, I was fascinated by your title because at first I thought it was the ending and then I thought, no, it's the end lean. Now, where did you come up with your title? Let's talk about that. I love titles. My husband was watching something on television while I was writing. And so when he catches a strange word, he gives it to me because I'm a word freak. I'm a word nerd. (laughs) And he said, have you ever heard of the end lean? And I said, no. So needless to say, I Googled it right away. The last of something, like the last dinosaur, the last snail darter, you know, that we couldn't save ah. from, from something. So she is the last Native American in her tribe. She is the endling, unless something oh, else happens, of course. Yeah. Wow. 
That makes sense. And it's such, it's a cool word. <laughs> Besides yes, that. I, see, you're, you might be a word nerd too. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, I love words. And, I, you know, everybody has certain words they hate too. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. That's true. Um, let's see, but I love that one. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book, just the premise of it to start off with so our listeners can kind of get a feel for it? Oh, yes. I'd love to do that. Well, she is an endling, and when she was two years old, her mother and her grandmother were killed in an automobile accident, leaving her grandfather to rear her because of bullying and because she's Native American. Uh, because she was bullied and because she had such a horrible time in the community, grandfather decided to homeschool her, and he taught her everything that he knew because in order for their traditions and their knowledge to go on, he had to give her that knowledge to share. So he did a lot of it through what he called mystery hunts, Think, um, mystery hunts that started in a tin. She would find a tin somewhere. And then she would learn a lot of lessons along the way as she solved the mysteries in the ten. So that's a piece of this novel as well, that um, and the ones to come afterwards, that she finds mystery hunts and tens that teach her something, and they flesh out her character and you know pump up her morals and her values. But um, the premise is that she is reared on this mount on one of these mountains. She owns three because the females in her clan or her tribe own the own the land, which is true in a lot of Native American tribes. Oh wow! Uh, when her grandfather dies, she inherit. You know, of course, she's alone on these mountains, and she inadvertently is caught on camera. It looks as though she's witnessed a horrific murder by the mob and they um, want to take her out. She could survive on her mountains. Now all of this, I'm not spoiling anything because this is on the back of the book. She could survive (laughs) on those mountains because she's been weird to do that. She's hardy. But there's an art colony below her mountains and there are three little girls that could get caught in in the crosshairs when the mob comes looking for Emerson. So she's got a tough decision to make. Does she burrow down in, in the mountains or does she risk everything and even her life to protect those children? Okay, so people should be intrigued now. I know I am. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Now, was, was Emerson, was she based on, on anyone you knew? I mean, a lot of times we incorporate, you know, people we've known um, or a uh, conglomeration and amalgam of people we've known. You know, it's interesting. Um, the grandfather was, and a lot of times these people, there, there are other folks, other characters that are sort of composites of my family. But I've had a lot of people tell me that when they read it, they thought, oh, you wrote about yourself. You're Emerson. Of course, I'm not anywhere near as young as Emerson or as pretty. But at any rate, I, I, I think I did sort of give her some of my values and certainly the thing with children because I worked with so many children as a therapist, you know, working with uh, children who were in the foster care system, abused and neglected. So that kind of comes through. Well, I, I think as authors, we always write a little 
a little piece of, we always add a little piece of us to everything. You know, it's like our fingerprint. Uh, thank you. you know. Yes, I, I agree. agree. I agree. Yeah. Which is great. And then our experiences wind up in there <clears throat> somehow too. But um, yes. now uh, tell us a little more about the children in the art colony. She seems to care quite a bit about them. And um, why are they in the art colony? I mean, what are they doing there? Okay. Well, there's a very wealthy woman that owns most of the land below her mountains, and she has an art colony that she gives residences to uh, artists for a year at a time. And we have one similar to that here in in Virginia. At any rate, uh, two of the children are in a rental unit. And they're highly neglected. They are living with an aunt, and she has almost nothing to do with them. And um, you can tell they've been neglected. They hide out at night, and that's what makes them uh, at risk to be in the crosshairs. The other one is the daughter of an artist, and she she looks probably anorexic. I don't say that in the book, but she's very, very tiny, and she doesn't eat. And they all are fascinated by Emerson. They think of her as a modern-day Indian princess. And because of that, um, they want to be around her, and that puts them in jeopardy. Um, Now, um, can you tell me a little about your, your Appalachian heritage and how you incorporate that into the story with these characters, these wonderful characters? Okay. Sure. Well, um, both sets of my grandparents are very Appalachian, and when uh, when folks read Miss uh, Hattie Mae, they're really listening to my grandmother's, both of them, their voices, uh, because I learned Appalachian speak. I, I mean, I know how to speak Appalachian, that's for sure, but um, also the Native American part, both of both sets of my grandparents. Um, told me that we had Native American blood. And at the time that Native Americans entered our family um, genetically, it was something to be ashamed of, not to be proud of, And but we were proud of it. In fact, it's fascinating to me that my, my paternal grandfather said that the Native American that married into that side of my family they were so embarrassed by it, they wouldn't let her use her tribal name. They called her Flora instead. So there's no records of her because I've tried to find her. But um, that's the way it used to be many years ago. And um, there, those have been very special memories to me. Uh, my grandfather teaching me some things about how Native Americans thought. He was a very quiet man. And when I went with him, I spent summers with them. And when I went with him out on his tractor, we would stop for lunch. And if deer came up, he'd say, that's the Lord's way of teaching us to be quiet and observe. And that's exactly how he was. So I have a lot of great memories like that. Uh, we, we certainly didn't dress like Native Americans or claim a clan or anything like that. But I grew up fascinated by all of it and digging deeper, deeper, deeper. I wanted to know more, more, more. And it, it was always that way. 
And when I was in the third grade, I read a book called My Side of the Mountain. And it was about a little boy that lived in the mountains and lived in a hollow tree. And I was a child that loved the woods. You couldn't get me out of the woods. I wanted to do that, and I wanted to be a Native American and live in the woods. So I always nurtured this idea that I would write a book about a woman that lived in the woods alone, uh, a Native American woman that lived in the forest. And, of course, it had to have a lot more to it than that, or it wouldn't have been a book anybody else wanted to read. (laughs) But that's kind of what started this whole thing. Well, you know, a lot of people, I mean, to to be able to live in the wilderness, in the mountains by yourself, um, is is quite a feat because you always hear about um, people on the Appalachian Trail. Someone will wander off, and if they don't find them right away, that could be it. Right. Did right. You, um, but have you traipsed around the mountains quite a bit <laughs> yourself? You must be oh, pretty familiar. Yes. I, I hike every day unless it's pouring rain, and that. All my life, I've grown up in the in the mountains, in the woods. Uh, my sister and I used to build little huts or igloos, or well, they weren't igloos, excuse me, but huts and teepees and stuff like that. Those were our playhouses, and we created our own trails. So I I don't remember ever panicking other than one time when we saw a huge brown bear, and it was pretty close. Oh, that was panicking. I grew up <laughs> like that, so I, yeah. I'm at home there. And now I stick to real trails. You know, I'm older now. I'm not going to go off on the Appalachian Trail by myself. But younger, I probably could have. Do the um, Native Americans, do they have any legends about, you know, like Sasquatch-type things? Or, you know, I've I've read about some other Native Americans who did. And I don't know if that's, you know, there's anything like that. Well, there are quite a few people that are related to different tribes in this area. Uh, one of the tribes in this area is called, are called the Monicans, and they're Christian Native Americans. And so that was also a big part of my book. I got to write about Christian oh, nice. Native Americans. And I got to work with the Monican Indians for a couple of years. So that was a wonderful piece, too, of research that happened. And there are also Cherokees in this area. They don't have a reservation, and there's no set place for them, but there are a lot of people with Cherokee heritage. Cherokees had um, a story about the little people in the forest and that you don't take anything out of the forest without asking the little people if you can. So there, there are legends around. I don't remember if any of them made it into the Indling or not because you know how it goes with writing. You put it in there and then you take it out and then you put it in and an editor takes it out. But right. I definitely <laughs> entertained all of that, you know, because <laughs> – but I had to be careful, too, because there, were, there was no particular tribe I was representing. So it wasn't like I had to get the details absolutely perfect. It's funny. Uh, little people, it, it kind of reminds you of leprechauns, uh, you know, the Irish and yeah. their leprechauns. <laughs> yes, very um, much like that. Did you incorporate, I know there are a lot of um, traditions among Appalachians, such uh, I happen to know about um, feather crowns. Do you know anything about yes. that? Oh. Uh, I do know I what that is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, there was no focus in the endling on most of those Appalachian um, traditions other than some of the voice that Hattie has or 
the, the maybe the recipes or the uh, the menu that Hattie serves on Sunday for Sunday dinner, that kind of thing. And there's so many um, home remedies and things that you can boil up tinctures and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, now, I, now <laughs> you're talking about my other book that I can't wait to have sold. Oh, good. Because I have a mountain granny, a 1940 mountain granny. Oh. That does exa- and my grandmother, my, my maternal my maternal grandmother was a mountain granny. She was She did most of the births in her county. She also prepared people for death. So I grew up looking for wildflowers and different herbs. And so all that's in my life, too. I'm so richly blessed by all that. But some of it's in the endling. Well, you can't put everything in the the first book. (laughs) It would be a tune nobody would want to pick up. Yeah, you've got to share. Share it. (laughs) So... um, uh, what surprised you when you were writing the end endling and, and people wonder like, Oh, how could you be surprised when you're the one writing the book? But sometimes the story kind of tells itself yes. to you as after you get going. Yes, Linda. And I, I call that, I know when that happens that I am just a scribe that I really believe the Holy spirit helps that he gives me surprises that I didn't see coming. And then I have to do something with those surprises. I'm just a scribe because before I ever penned this this book, I asked God to just take it. I would give it to him, and I'd love to have some help. And if it didn't go anywhere, that's fine, but I want to be true to it. And a lot of times I got those surprises. And I want to tell you a cool surprise that had nothing to do with writing. In, okay. in the book, okay, I had to scribe um, uh a pendant that she she has that she finds in a tin, and I won't tell you what it looks like. But on a whim, I decided one day, what if I Googled these particular parts of the pendant? Wonder if I could get something like it. I found it down to the letter, even carved in bare bone. So oh, wow. that was just like God winked and patted me on the shoulder. And it was a wonderful surprise. And that whole pennant idea was one of those that just came through. It wasn't something I thought about. You know, I mean, God never ceases to amaze believers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. it yes. is amazing. You know, um, well, your book, this, there's a lot of suspense in your book. I mean, because you're on the show. That's yes. about mystery and suspense. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> do you, how important do you think suspense is? You know, because, uh, well, there's a, a writer we probably both know, Diane Mills, who says conflict should be on every page. Um, yes. How do you add suspense? How important do you think it is? I think it's really important, but I don't think it's the focal point for me. Uh, you know, sometimes it's the awe of being in the mountains. For me, I want to read that too. And it's not just about, I want to be carried away by somebody's passion. I I want to feel what they feel and see what they see. And that's not all about suspense. So, you know, you get a lot of how Emerson feels about her grandfather and about her heritage. And, 
you get to see the mountains and especially the Blue Ridge. If you haven't seen the Blue Ridge, you need to. You know, you have to see that. You have to be a part of that when you read it. That's not suspense. That's just putting you where she is. I I like that because so many books um, read more like a script, and they don't they don't bring you in to the setting. You know, um, right. for me, I I like the description because I want to see it in my mind while I'm, you know, listening to the characters, you know, so to speak. Um, yes, and the description is very important so that you're into in that world with the character, and you care. Yes. And those are the books that I like. I like the books where I have a vivid idea of what it looks like. So, but uh, there's plenty of suspense because I need you to turn the page to the next chapter. So, you know, there's plenty of suspense in it. But I hope what people come away with, and most of the time that's what people are saying with their reviews, that they could see the mountains, that they were where she was. You know, they were right there where she was. And that's important to me because I think that's what I want to share as much as anything else is the beauty of God's creation and how how incredible it is and how God speaks to us through everything. You know, the Bible says even the rocks will cry out, and that's in the beginning of my book because she, Emerson, looks to nature to give her guidance about what to do. And all throughout the book, that's what I've included is what her grandfather taught her, just like my grandfather taught me, that God used the deer to show us to be quiet and observe. You know, um, that's so true because people always say, what about people, what about uh, those who have never heard the word of God? Well, there's two ways that God reveals himself, which is your conscience and also um, the world around you, nature. He's revealed himself in all of creation and so um, by those two ways, many people can come to know him. So is, said. It, but is that, is that your faith message or the main faith message in your book? Oh, I think that's, that's part of it is that God can use anything to speak to us, anything. And in this book, I, you know, I won't spoil it by all the different ways, but definitely nature is a huge piece of how God speaks to her, how the Holy Spirit speaks to her. And, you know, maybe through the voices of other people, but nature is a huge piece of it. And it has always been for me. So that's, know, that's why I think people fall around Emerson, because I, that's just who I am. But, you know, that's so true. I think um, if if the Holy Spirit can't speak to someone through nature, it's because we're not listening. I know, and, and hopefully it doesn't take a rainbow or a burning bush to get our attention, you know? It shouldn't True. take a huge crisis. It should take daily looking, looking at the stars and, you know, looking at nature in all of its forms. A nice breeze with honeysuckle this morning on my deck. I felt like God was speaking to me and saying, this is going to be a great day. We used to. I remember taking those honeysuckle blossoms and and looking the insides when I was a yes. kid, <laughs> trying to collect that so honey. Good. They're so good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, what I like to share, like especially since you're a debut author, but I like to hear about how it happened for you. How did you get that contract? You know, that's always a big deal. 
Well, and this is the advice I would give anybody that wants to have a book contract. It was writer's conferences. I went to a writer's conference, and before I went, wow, talk about gutsy, I sent in an entry into their unpublished, unnoticed, unknown, we don't know who you are, but you can send us (laughs) something, and we'll try to see if we can, you know, look at it and see if you need a prize here. And I got third place, and it changed my life. Okay. And also, and it's in the very beginning of my, you know, dedication or thanks. And the editor, Eva Marie Everson, picked up that, you know, those three chapters of that book, and on her own, her own time, she edited it and found me, and she said, "You've got something special here," and um, she wanted me to really work on it, that she didn't want me to just let it go. And so it was so encouraging because there I was working. I was running a counseling center and working weekends, memorizing court cases because I I was an expert witness more than a thousand times. And I thought, how am I going to write and really give this the kind of time and dedication? But we all know that if that's what you want to do and if if God gives you that purpose, you get the time. But I would say go to writers' conferences, learn the craft, learn from the people who have who have made it and can network. You know, you don't have to sell what you've written. You also have to sell yourself and say, I really want to learn this. And, you know, you'll find mentors everywhere. It's so hard for writers to sell themselves, too, because we're kind of solitary people. Yeah. You know, but yeah. if you've got to sell yourself um, to some extent. And uh, and even yeah. afterwards, you have to learn how to sell yourself, <laughs> to sell your oh, book. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, and it's not, and, not our and I think. No, it's not. And I have to get myself out of the way and know that I gave this book to God and he gave it back through me. And when I'm selling this book, I am selling I'm selling the idea of Christ and hopefully mm-hmm. the people that get a closer walk because they read it or people that never figured it this way, you know, that God would speak through nature or whatever, but I'm selling that idea. So I'm, I'm doing it for a different reason. It's not like a beauty contest for sure. <laughs> it's more like, you know, I don't have to present me as much as I have to present my idea that came through me. Like I said, I'm the scribe. Well, um, gosh, we're running out of time, which that always happens, unfortunately. But um, where sure. can people find you on social media? I mean, which places are you most active? I'm most active on Facebook, and it would be Deborah Maxi author. Um, DebraMaxi.com. I do a monthly blog on, on miracles, less than 800 words personal miracles that happened to me. Um, and definitely, you know, the book is easy enough to find. It's on Barnes & Noble or Amazon or Christian Book. But I hope people do reach out. Is it uh, is it ebook and and paperback or um, yes. or hardcover? It's or Kindle. Okay. It's okay. not hardcover. It's a, I guess, well, it says hardcover, but it's not real hard. It's hard paper. How about that? 
Yeah, that's what they said. They call it. it, it there's a whole range in there. <laughs> I know. I'm learning so much, Linda. <laughs> there's so much I didn't know, and I still don't know. Oh, well, uh, listeners, I just hope you check out uh, Deborah Maxey. And you're working on a new project. We have two, less than two minutes left, but you're also wor- you're working on a second book. Is that related to the first book, a sequel? I have the second book in this series finished, and I'm plotting the third. And then the other book that I hope right. to sell is called Hiding in Hickory Hoe Collar. Oh, okay, awesome. So you're not letting the grass grow under your feet. No. I haven't retired. I said repurposed. <laughs> well, congratulations on your debut novel. Thank you. And I hope Thank you'll come you. back when that second one is published, and we'll talk more I about love it. Appalachia and all the wonderful things. <laughs> and I Thank appreciate you for the you wonderful questions. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Deb. Deborah. I want to call you Deb. I don't know why. But <laughs> That's how we know each other. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much, and we Thank hope you. to see you again soon. Congratulations. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.